Good evening, everybody. Glad y'all made it tonight to this uh, Holy Week experience. I know this is a different setup and a different vibe than we usually have at the story. Um, and it's just a different, it's a different day. Um, and I know it would be a lot easier and more pleasant and more convenient to just skip all this stuff and uh, act like the crucifixion never really happened um, in light of the fact that we kind of know the ending. You know what I mean? So it's a little weird that we're here singing sad songs and kind of, in some ways, feigning some sad vibes in the room when we know what's coming on Sunday. You know, it would be like going back and watching the 2017 World Series and, and after game six when the Dodgers win and it goes 3-3 and we're in L.A. and it's like, oh, this is gonna, it's awful and we're just, you know, we're going to lose. It would be like... Pretending to be sad, even though you know what happens in game seven. You know Springer hits the home run. You know that, you know, uh, that, that what's his name, the, the McCullers lights out. Like, you know what's happening. So why get sad? I think it's important for us to sit with the crucifixion. I want to talk about why tonight. Because the crucifixion um, in and of itself was a turning point in human history. And uh, any serious historian, regardless of his or her faith, uh, takes the crucifixion seriously as an historical event. It actually happened, and we know this in history. So what did it mean uh, when it happened? Um, they say that the uh, Romans didn't invent crucifixion, they just perfected it. Because for centuries before the Roman Empire, civilizations, governments were crucifying dudes, like for a thousand years before Jesus. The Assyrians were crucifying people, uh, Babylonians crucifying people. There's even at least one historical account of Jewish leaders crucifying their enemies after a battle, 200, 300 years before Jesus. But before the Roman Empire, crucifixion wasn't about pain and torture. It was just about humiliation. So before the Roman Empire, it, what they did was they, they would just put a convicted criminal up on a cross, you know, and tie him up there with ropes and leave him there for a day or two. And they would write or paint his uh, crime on a sign and they would hang it over his head. And everybody that would pass by would mock him or curse him or make fun of him or throw something at him. And they'd leave him there for a day or two. Then they'd take him down and, and they would send him to prison where he would serve out the rest of his sentence. It was pre-Rome, at least it was... Uh, mostly about humiliation. Now, Rome believed uh, that Pax Romana, if you're familiar with that term, was uh, basically controlled by fear. So it was peace by way of implicit force. And the way that they made the people groups, the nations that they conquered, the way that they made sure those people knew that Rome was in control was by scaring them. And so Rome took that ancient practice of crucifixion and they upped the ante. Because by the time Rome came around, tying people up to a tree for a day or two just didn't have the same effect that it did a thousand years before. And so Rome took crucifixion and uh, turned it up a notch. At first, the earliest evidence of Roman crucifixion was exactly the same except the, the, the convicts, the criminals, convicted dudes were stripped naked before they were put up 
on the cross, to increase the level of, of humiliation and shame uh, in, in front of the public. And then the Romans started leaving those naked dudes up there until they died by thirst or hunger or predators, scavengers came to you know, peck away at their flesh and devour them. And then Romans, the Romans started using nails instead of ropes and uh, these kinds of uh, nails about this long, uh, kind of like train track, that's the closest thing we have to them today, train and track nails, are all over the Roman Empire as, you know, relics from that time. And Rome would use the nails to nail people to the crosses. But even then, when they would nail them to crosses, it was still a matter of keeping them on the cross for a prolonged period of time. It wasn't just to inflict pain and leave them there, uh, you know, and torture them. It was to keep them there. And so for a time, there's some evidence that when guys were nailed to crosses, they were given seats to sit on. And so there's some, like, inscriptions that said he sat on his cross. So there was like, uh, you might see some artwork of people sitting on crosses. So there was this evolution that took place with, uh, with crucifixion. Um, uh, this was all meant, of course, to scare people into submission. And eventually that whole seat, stool thing went away and it was more and more egregious and awful. And it happened every day in the Roman Empire. Tens of thousands of foreigners, non-citizens, were crucified by the Romans. So, the day Jesus died was nothing special, according to the Romans. From the Roman vantage point, the day Jesus died, it was just another day in Rome. Another day in the Roman Empire. Because, you know, multiple guys were crucified every day in places like Jerusalem, where they were still trying to subdue this foreign group. And so all the stuff they did to Jesus, they did to most other people that were convicted as criminals. And it almost always started with a beating, with a flogging, with something called a flagrum, which was a leather whip with many strands or straps that had actual like um, sheep bones um, and shards of glass that, that would be like um, uh, tied into it so that it tore away at the flesh. Uh, full disclosure, I ordered myself a leather whip. I was going to show you guys what this was like. True story. I ordered a leather whip on Amazon and it showed up and it was not what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Gio said it's 250 shades and I'm not allowed to show it in public. In fact, she said I have to return it. So I was going to show you a visual aid, but she said it would weird everybody out. So I'll just show you a picture instead. So these were used on, uh, most of them had many more uh, threads than this. I just wanted you to see how, how ornate those, uh, those shards uh, and sharp things were that would tear away at the flesh. I know everybody kind of made fun of Mel Gibson's movie when it came out. That part of the movie was actually very accurate, where the, where the flagrum would tear away at the flesh every time uh, the man was beaten. And they did this to Jesus, tearing away at his flesh. Then they uh, cast lots for his clothes. This was a game, 
the Roman soldiers would play, and there's a lot of historical evidence of this game. It was called the King's Game, and there's all these game boards that have been uncovered and around the Roman Empire, um, the ruins of the Roman Empire. Um, I, I saw this particular game board in the barracks, the Roman military barracks in Jerusalem. This is probably the actual game board where they cast lots for Jesus' clothes. And it was another way of humiliating the person. They would strip him naked, hang him there on the cross, and then they would give the clothes to the soldier, the Roman soldier who won this game. Jesus probably, unlike uh, what you may have seen or heard, Jesus probably didn't carry the whole cross beam, I mean the whole cross, uh, both parts of it, um, from his uh, conviction to the place of the cross. Uh, you see, the Romans didn't uh, need a fresh cross for every, every person. There was, wasn't enough wood to go around. That's how many people they were, they were crucifying. And so they kept the vertical posts there. And the vertical posts just stayed at the place of the crucifixions. They reused those because there were multiples per day. And so Jesus probably carried the horizontal cross beam through what's called the Via Dolorosa today, uh, through the city of Jerusalem, again, another way of shaming him. That cross beam, uh, we think, must have weighed around 150 pounds. And he carried that after being uh, beaten and flogged and punched repeatedly. They nailed Jesus with those long nails to that horizontal beam first. And instead of this, like we've always seen, it was probably more like this. Like he probably put his arms around the cross, and the nails probably went in this way. Again, I mean, if you've ever watched any of the movies that have come out, Case for Christ and stuff like that, like the, the bones in your hand won't support that kind of weight, but your arms around the cross would keep you alive longer. And so Jesus probably put his arms around the cross like this, and they drove those nails through his hand or through his wrists. And then we're told they nailed Jesus' feet to the cross, and this has always puzzled me. I didn't know how they did this until I went to the Holy Land myself. And I used to think that they put like the feet on top of each other kind of awkwardly like that and like one nail through. It just didn't make sense to me. How do you nail feet to a cross? Well, this picture is, uh, is a bone fragment that they found in an ossuary in Jerusalem from the first century about the same time Jesus was crucified and it shows the nail going through a foot, through the ankle portion of a foot, but instead of from the top, it's coming in from the side. And so if you can imagine Jesus on the cross, both feet would have been straddling uh, either side of that vertical beam and they would have nailed him through the ankles from the outside in to pin him to the cross with all of his weight bearing down on those bones. It would have been enough pain to send a man into shock. When he was thirsty, he asked for something to drink and the Roman soldiers offered him either sour wine or vinegar, depending on which gospel you're reading. They all say he was thirsty and he got something to drink, but a couple of them say sour wine, a couple of them say vinegar, and it doesn't really matter. I'll tell you why in a second. But it says that the soldiers offered him that with a sponge that was attached somehow to a stick. And this, if you're a skeptic, is another part of the story that's just like, what? Like, who brings a sponge to a crucifixion? Like, how did you find a sponge on a stick 
at a crucifixion. It just did not add up. And why not give him water? Why give him sour wine or vinegar instead of water? Well, archaeology has helped us solve this riddle as well as we've uncovered more and more of what was really going on at the time because whenever the Romans conquered a city, we know that they set aside certain buildings, certain venues to be their latrines, to be their public restrooms. If you know anything about how Romans used the restroom, it was very public and very open, a shared open space, no stalls, just you'd go and sit next to each other. And and they liked theaters for this the best because what they would do is that they would take the theater out and they would cut all the holes into the the theater seating. And we've we've uncovered all kinds of these latrines like these. They would sit on top and then do their business right next to each other. Roman citizens and soldiers were allowed to use these public restrooms. Here's where it gets crazy to me. Archaeologists have found placards, inscriptions, in some of these ancient Roman latrines with readings that say, rinse sponge when finished. And here's what we found. We found all hundreds of sponges attached to sticks in these latrines. Because uh, if we could go back again to the slide before, Aubrey, the hole in front is where the sponge would go to clean yourself with. Now, why was one of those at a crucifixion? Because it's very likely that Roman soldiers carried a pack around with them And in their pack of supplies would have been anything that they needed while on the road, including a stick with a sponge for them to clean themselves and something to disinfect that stick or the sponge, something to wrench, to rinse that sponge with something like vinegar or sour wine. This is why your gospel writers don't know which one it is because they just know what the Roman soldiers disinfected their toilet sponges with. And so even this act of giving Jesus a drink on the cross was, was not a, an act of mercy. It was another slap in the face. It was another insult, maybe the most awful insult, disgusting insult. It was the same as saying, eat our, you know. As if the crucifixion wasn't enough. Jesus drank from that sponge. For me, the most important part of the story is also the most confusing part. It is where Jesus on the cross cries out to the heavens, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, was Jesus really forsaken by God? Forsaken means forgotten. Was this a moment of weakness? I mean, it would be understandable given everything that he went through. Was this a moment of weakness or was something else going on here? As always with Jesus, we have to keep in mind who he was talking to, who was around him at the time when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because if you learn nothing else from the gospels, learn this, Jesus does or says nothing by accident. He is always intentional. So who was there? at the crucifixion scene. I'm gonna read this story uh, from Matthew 27, verse 27 through 50, if you, uh, y'all just follow along on the screen and, uh, and just listen for what's happening. 
Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they came upon a man from Serene named Siren. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they crucified him, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. And then they sat down there and kept watch over him. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man's calling for Elijah. And at once one of them ran and got a sponge attached to a stick, filling with sour wine and gave him the drink. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. So when Jesus says those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he really saying? I think on the one hand, maybe he does feel in that moment Alone, okay, but that's not all that's going on. The Gospels all say that, this, that the, the people who accused Jesus of crucifixion, I mean, of, of, of sedition and treason to get him crucified were there. The Pharisees were there at the crucifixion. There were a few of Jesus' friends, but the Pharisees were there. The scribes were there. The chief priests were all there making fun of Jesus as he died on the cross. And, and so we have to consider this when we look at these words that Jesus is saying because these are the guys that wanted him guilty and not only guilty of heresy, they could have convicted him of heresy in their own community. They didn't need the Romans to put Jesus on a cross to convict Jesus of heresy. Do you understand? Those guys, the chief priests, kill dudes for heresy all the time. They could have stoned Jesus to death just like they did other upstart prophets. Why send him to Rome? Why accuse him of treason? And they said to, to the uh, Pontius Pilate, the Roman officials, they said, he calls himself a king. We have no king but Caesar. He's a traitor. Because they knew the punishment for sedition was crucifixion. And those dudes wanted Jesus on a cross. The question is why? And the answer is in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 21, 23, very clearly it reads that anyone who hangs on a tree and dies dies under the curse of God. So these villains wanted Jesus on a cross so they could stand there as he bled and drank from a toilet sponge and as he died and they could point to their Bibles and tell everybody that followed Jesus, see, we told y'all we tried to tell you he's a fraud. How could the Messiah of God die under God's own curse? We told you. We were right. He's hanging on a tree. And that's when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the one thing about religious guys 
hyper-religious guys like Pharisees, they always know their Bibles. It is a badge of honor for those guys. You all know a guy who has his memory verse every day and he knows his Bible chapter and verse and he makes you feel stupid because you don't know what chapter and verse it is. And like, like that's, that's the kind of people who were accusing Jesus here, the super legalistic people. They know their Bibles. Jesus knew his too. And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is not just sharing his feelings. He's quoting scripture. Psalm 22, to be specific. So that's the only part of the psalm that he says. But because his enemies know all the psalms by heart, to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the psalms, their minds would have immediately gone to the rest of the psalm, which reads this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? For dogs are all around me. You see what he's doing? Dogs are all around me. A pack of villains encircles me. Jesus is throwing shade on these dudes from the cross as he's dying on a tree. This, this is a gangster move right here. I'm sorry, but it is. It's just like, it's awesome. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. So this is more evidence of the, uh, the way Romans crucified people, right? They didn't, it wasn't on a hill far away outside of view. It was right there on a busy street. Everybody was staring and this gospel say people were passing by and criticizing him. They stare and gloat. They divide my clothes among themselves. Y'all, this psalm was written 800 years before, before Jesus hanged on the cross. They divide my clothes among themselves. For my clothing they cast lots. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of this congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried out to him. Listen. When you realize this is what Jesus is doing. The my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It makes a little bit more sense. Jesus was sending a message first to his enemies as they pointed at their Bibles and said, the Bible says this man is cursed. Jesus pointed to the very same Bible and said, you dogs, you villains. No one is cursed. There is no curse. I am bearing the curse to end all curses. Every curse is broken. For our God does not despise the affliction of the afflicted any longer. Now, it's pretty awesome, I think, that Jesus had the presence of mind to call out these villains using their own rule book against them. And what did he do next? He said, John, take care of my mom. He said, Mom, take care of John, his best friend. And he wasn't hanging up high. He was maybe a foot or two off the ground at eye level. His mom was touching him the whole time, comforting him.
And then he looked at the soldiers that drove those nails through his hands and his feet who were just a few feet away from him. And within their earshot, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. By the end of the first century, some of the strongest and most outspoken Christians in the world were Roman soldiers. Then he let one more scream out, and he died. That final scream might seem like an insignificant detail in the story, but if you remember the psalm we just read, it means everything. The last line of that psalm, Psalm 22, was, he did not hide his face from me, but he heard when I cried out to him. He heard when I cried out to him, and this is why all of this matters. All of this matters because people still cry out to him today. For all kinds of different reasons. There's people in this room right now that cry out to God. There are men who maybe don't even know how to cry, crying out to God on the inside under the weight and the pressure of their own unmet expectations in life. Feeling like they don't measure up, feeling like we're not enough, feeling like... We're not as good as those others around us. And women the same way, looking at other women's lives or other people's lives, wondering how in the world you're going to be all things to all people again today. And there's young people in this room, students in this room right now, who cry out to God under the weight of what they feel is conditional love because there are students in this room right now who feel like their parents would love them more if they were better in school or if they were better at whatever extracurricular activities their parents have spent a fortune on. And we are dying under the weight of those crosses. And of course, there are people throughout our city and people throughout the world suffering under heavier crosses than the ones we bear. And they cry out, too. So what happens when we cry out, to God? What happens when we cry out to God and say, why am I going through this? Why has this happened to me? Why don't I have what they have? Why don't I have what I thought you promised to me? Why, God, have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? I swear to God, I'm cursed. With that final cry, Jesus told his enemies and his friends, and all of us, that there's no such thing as a curse anymore. No matter what your circumstances, or your family upbringing, or your relationship status, or your GPA, there's no such thing as a curse. For our God does not despise the affliction of the afflicted. And he came to set us all free. And he knows what we're up against. He hears us when we cry. And no one is forsaken or cursed or destined to die. 
So even when it seems like darkness is winning today, like it must have seemed like darkness was winning that day, the worst day, when the best man who ever walked the face of the earth, the most gentle and kind and humble and loving, our own good Samaritan who came and just loved everyone he met when he suffered a punishment he never deserved. Even then, darkness couldn't win evil through everything it had at God that day. And Jesus overcame it with love. So whatever evil or darkness you're up against, it's already been defeated. It was nailed to the cross. It died with Jesus. Whatever you're facing now is just an aftermath of that battle. The victory is yours. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for the people in this room right now, myself included, who cry out under the weight of our own grief, feeling like uh, we'll just never get ahead in this life, feeling like we'll just never have the answer. God, I pray that the hearts in this room that you are working on right now, people who have recently or even this very moment come into a new awareness of the reality of love in this world and where love comes from. You are the source of that love. I pray that we would not wait another day to say yes to that love that hears our cries, that redeems and restores, that forgives everything and sets us free to live in victory even though darkness may be around us at times. God, remind us that we don't have to wait until Easter to say yes to your risen Savior. Lord, if even in this moment right now, someone in this room feels compelled to make a change, let this moment be the turning point. Thank you, God, for setting us free of the cross. Truly, we are no longer beholden to the ways of this world and the performances that we have to, to, to show off and, and perform for others and, and succeed and, and achieve. We're set free to be yours, to share love with those around us. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen.